Today's Dead Idea. This is part three of our series on Byzantine court eunuchs, and today concludes the life story of the eunuch that rose to military command, Narses. Yay, Narses! That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, who is once again righteously pissed, this time because she just learned that Tina Turner will not star in the new remake of Mad Maximius Beyond Hippodrome. <laughs> <laughs> the Hippodrome was, of course, Constantinople's great race course, featuring not only chariot races, but also political discussions and imperial ceremonies, and the chariot teams that took part were actually sponsored by political parties, that we learned about last time, the Blues and the Greens, that led political chants and even street riots, as we heard last time. Blues for Coke, Greens for Pepsi. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we're going to turn it right back over to Anna to continue the saga of Narcisse. Okay, so when we last left off, Narcisse has just been recalled back to Constantinople. He's been a bit of a thorn in the side of Belisarius, which technically he was put there to be, but unfortunately he's done a little too good a job, uh, to the extent that now the Roman army is losing territory in uh, the the Italian peninsula. As a result, Belisarius has to slog it out for another year, but he does manage to capture the Roman commander Vitiges. As he begins to advance on the Gothic capital at Ravenna, the remaining Gothic leaders come up with a desperate but sort of feasible-sounding idea. Why don't we enter offer Belisarius the throne? He can become the Western Roman emperor, and we get to hold on to our land. Everything's great. We just get him to rule us instead of Justinian. Um, Belisarius agrees. He marches into Ravenna. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah. He oh, marches. He marches into Ravenna. And says, "Okay." Takes his troops in, and then says, "Psych." Oh, yeah. This no. is Justinian's again. Basically, breaks their power bloodlessly, which is ingenious. Man, I love Belisarius. Yeah, he's, he's a pretty yeah. cool, almost dude. as good as Narses, but not quite. No. That's the tragedy of this entire campaign: is they're both geniuses in their own right. Yeah, you know? almost they... as good as Narses. <laughs> Inconceivable. <laughs> At any rate, he's able to wrap up the rest of the campaign pretty well. Um, he departs for Constantinople. He, no, Belisarius treated the Gothic population pretty well. Unfortunately, the army left behind doesn't. In fact, he's recalled to Constantinople pretty quickly for Ju- by Justinian to go fight the Persian Wars on their eastern front, which have just re-erupted. And unfortunately, the army left behind is not exactly well-provisioned, is not terribly nice people, and also is not really nearly as smart as Belisarius, which is going to cause problems for everybody in a little bit. But that's the setup. That's how technically the first phase of the Gothic Wars ends. Okay. Back in Constantinople, Narses is already still there. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to make sure. Hang on, let me drink some more schnapps, bitches. Despite being recalled back to Constantinople earlier. And being already still there. He's already still there. <laughs> Fuck y'all! <laughs> Narses has still enjoyed the confidence of Justinian and Theodora. There are no repercussions that we hear of for having slightly um, hamstrung the later phases of uh, what Belisarius had achieved. And in fact, it probably just shored him up a little more. The royal couple, by the way, historically acted in tandem, but only up to a point. Theodora, as I said, was paranoid about losing her position, especially to Belisarius. And she also had to compete with other members of the administration for Justinian's ear, which she resented. She was, uh, in some respects, a co-ruler and was able to exert pressure in her own way. So, 
As a result of the Nika riots, which we covered in the last installment, uh, Justinian had dismissed John the Cappadocian back in 532. It was an attempt to appease the masses. John was, again, his chief money wrangler, who was exceptionally good at getting blood from a stone and also getting stones thrown at him after a fashion. Of course, he also got reinstated a bunch of times because Justinian needs money. He had to rebuild Constantinople after the riots. He's had to rebuild uh, the Church of the Holy Apostles, which is where Constantine the Great's buried. He also rebuilt um, Hagia Sophia mm -hmm. and has made it into the sort of famous structure it is now, which did not look like that at the beginning of his reign and now looks like something yeah. everybody knows. So is that because of the Nicaraites that he yes. rebuilt the... Yeah, it was actually kind of a nice opportunity because he mm -hmm. wanted to build it. Yeah. He wanted to build this great church, but didn't have a place for it. And then it burned down in the Nicaraites and it's like, oh... He's like, yeah. I can build one of the most famous pieces of architecture in all, all time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the roof fell in. Well, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. It, it was a good piece of engineering. Asterisk. Yeah, but, you know, it, every good piece of engineering needs a little work. At any rate, he's also um, got a war with Persia going on his eastern front, um, which eventually he will be buying off. And he's trying also to have an entire army marching through uh, the western half of, of his empire, trying to get back Italy. So basically he needs money, and mm -hmm. that means he needs John the Cappadocian. Now, this means John the Cappadocian is back in favor. Um, Theodora doesn't like that. Uh, John is reinstated once again, and he has a great degree of influence over the emperor. Theodora resents that because, among other things... All the stuff he's famous for were sort of the stuff that lit a lot of the fire of the riot, or at least were a contributing cause. And again, she is not about being deposed. So I think she's got a lot of residual resentment for him. Not helped by the fact that uh, John the Cappadocian doesn't have any particular respect for her. So they're at mm. loggerheads. Narses, by contrast, she does trust, not only for his role in having put down those riots, for tamping down those fires, mm -hmm. but for ensuring that Belisarius didn't get too big for his britches. Mm -hmm. Although, again, she has Belisarius' wife, Antonina, to thank for that. As I stated before, the two women are friendly with each other. They've come from a similar theatrical background, low birth, and Antonina frequently acts on the Empress's behalf. At this time, it's 540, and both the general and his wife are back in town. Antonina would usually follow Belisarius on campaigns. Mm -hmm. uh, he's being deployed out to fight the Persians, and she's just sort of hanging around in Constantinople with the um, idea that she'll join him later. Now... Antonina and Theodora contrive a plot to get rid of John the Cappadocian by framing him for treason. And they want to get rid of John, and they find the best way of doing this is through his daughter, his only daughter, his favorite, because she's his only daughter. And by that extension, probably his least favorite, because, again, only daughter, Euphemia. I love the name Euphemia. Euphemia. There's fantastic women's names in the Byzantine Empire. Like, my favorite one is Vigilantia. Oh, God. Huh, yeah, that's pretty good. good. <laughs> Euphemia is cozied up to by Antonina. The older woman basically is super nice, this impressionable young girl, wins her over, confides her secrets in her, is just generally acting like a cool older sister. To quote again Procopius, and on one occasion, when Antonina was present alone with Euphemia in her room, she pretended to lament the fate that was upon her, saying that although Belisarius had, been, had made the Roman Empire broader by a goodly measure than, than it had been before, and though that he had brought two captive kings and so great amount of wealth to Byzantium, he found Justinian ungrateful, and in other respects she slandered the government as not just. Now Euphemia was overjoyed by these words, for she too was hostile to the present administration by reason of her fear to the empress, of the empress. And she said, And yet, dearest friend, it is you and Belisarius who are to blame for this, seeing that, although you have opportunity, 
you are not willing to use your power. I'm imagining her braiding her hair this whole oh, time. Oh, totally. There's hair braiding. There's such <laughs> hair braiding. Somebody's getting their nails filed. Yeah. Anyway, Antonina is like, okay, this is going great. And she says, well, yeah, but that's the thing. I mean, Belisarius would totally be willing to move against Justinian, but we just don't have the opportunity. We don't have someone we can conspire with. Now, if we had somebody like your father, I bet a coup against Justinian would totally work. Also, does this shade of lip pigment work on me right now, do you think, or am I too old for it? Oh, I think you look great. I, just th I think it makes it really pop. So anyway, she basically maneuvers, it's a setup, she maneuvers this poor girl into thinking, oh wow, if I tell dad this, dad will totally be able to move against the emperor. This is the thing about the setup, though. I'm not exactly sure why John goes for it. Procopius states it's because John sees a way to somehow get into power himself, or at least, at the very least, maybe not have a hostile Theodora to contend with if Justinian was deposed. But on the other hand, it seems like John, for all his faults, was usually pretty loyal to Justinian, because he owed him his career, and also because John kept re getting reinstated, even after all the shit that got dredged up. Mm -hmm. And Procopius also mentions that John hated Belisarius. So it doesn't seem like the two men would necessarily be in cahoots. Mm. It's like, that sort of seems like a glaring omission here. Mm -hmm. I kind of wonder if John was actually planning a setup of his own when he heard this. He's like, I can get incriminating evidence on Belisarius mm -hmm. and get rid of my rival. Or, alternately, I can catch the Empress in a lie and then, you know, get her discredited with Justinian. I don't think he was necessarily thinking straight out that he'd somehow depose the Emperor. Because he was not a popular guy at all. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he has any particular reason to assume somebody he doesn't like in the form of Belisarius is going to keep him around in an administration. Yeah, he's got a sweet deal at the moment, and he's not going to yeah, rise think... to power himself on a tide of popularity. I'm seeing yeah. wheels within wheels here. It's never really yeah. spelled out. It's very Byzantine. Exactly! Yeah. Yes. So anyway, foolishly... He tells Euphemia that he's going to meet with Antonina, who promptly spins him a story about how she's going to go meet her husband in the East and go and tell him on campaign that, you know, he has John's support. And says she says that John should come to her estate outside the city, which is again across the Golden Horn over the, over the Sea of Mamara, and should meet her under the pretext that he's, asking as her, he's acting as her escort to go send her off, and there they'll finalize their plans to overthrow Justinian. He agrees. Not a good move. Um, the Empress, meanwhile, denounces uh, to Justinian when he she hears the bait set that all the things that John was being was doing to you know work against him. And again, to quote Procopius, she sent Narses, the eunuch, and Marcellus, the commander of the palace guards, to Rufinine, the suburb where this is happening, with numerous soldiers in order that they might investigate what was going on, and if they found John setting about a revolution, that they might kill the man forthwith and return. So these departed for that task. Uh, so Narcissus is basically being sent there and being told, hey, listen in. When you hear some stuff that sounds like rebellion, reach it, go and get John. Either kill him or capture him. Emphasis on kill. Mm -hmm. uh, they do get sent out there, and Narcissus does overhear this whole thing, but, uh, again quoting, there, while John with unguarded tongue was asserting, was assenting to the plans for the attack and binding himself with the most dread oaths, Narses and Marcellus suddenly set upon him. But in the natural confusion which resulted, the bodyguards of John, for they stood close by, immediately came by to his side. And one of them smote Marcellus with his sword, not knowing with it who he was, and thus John was enabled to escape with him and reached the city with all speed. He basically runs back and is like, Oh, God, God, what happened to Justinian? Uh-huh. Um... Things go pretty badly for John after that. Uh, not as badly as you expect, though. He does manage to take sanctuary. He becomes an extremely unconvincing priest, uh, tonsured. He gets his estate plundered uh, because, hey, well, you're going to make money for me one way or the other. 
Justinian, however, seems to feel that John was framed. Probably because John was framed. Um, he remits some of his estate back to him, and Theodora keeps gunning for John, but that's another story. He does actually manage to outlive her, although she makes his life a living hell. Justinian, again, not super vindictive in the terminal sense, as a rule. Huh. I think he sort of thinks Theodora's doing something here. I'm not sure I buy it. It doesn't make sense that you'd do this. Mm. It does feel his paranoia towards Belisarius, especially after that whole thing where Belisarius basically temporarily pretended he was going to take the throne. Uh-huh. I mean, even though it was to an end of basically handing it back to Justinian, that sort of thing makes you feel a little itchy in your soul, I think. Huh. This is so weird because everything else that I've heard about Justinian's reign is like he's super autocratic and just like got Constantinople on lockdown and he's always like trying to like reform this, reform that, blah, blah, blah. He's always got his own ideas. But when it comes to the wars here, which I didn't really look into that much, it seems like he's really quite removed. He is. And this kind of, well, the problem is, is that he's fighting so many wars on so many fronts. Uh-huh. The ongoing fight with Persia, which, right. you know, keeps boiling up. Is not armies great. are locked up in Italy. Yeah, yeah, and you've got random, you know, barbarians occasionally slogging up, you know, around in the north. Plus, you only just recently put down the Vandalic um, uh, kingdoms in North Africa. Mm-hmm. I kind of wonder what Narses thought of this whole deal, though. I mean, was he in on the deal? Did Theodorus explicitly tell him, "Hey, we've set, we're setting up John the Cappadocian. I need you to go here. Here's the plausible deniability thing." Or mm-hmm. was he kept out of the dark deliberately to make it seem more convincing? Like mm-hmm. he's got a rep for being discerning and reasonably loyal to Justinian. Is it safer not to let him in on this mm-hmm. right. to make the whole thing seem more feasible? Right. I mean, also, it kind of seems that he and Belisarius wouldn't have been on friendly terms themselves. You know, they were at loggerheads during the campaign. Yeah. He also knows Belisarius, so probably he thinks, no, I don't think this is feasible. I just wonder what he was thinking of this whole time. Hmm. Like, if he buys this, if he's okay with the framing. Just because he does some underhanded stuff doesn't necessarily mean he'd be willing to set someone up, you know? Right. Unless it was for the greater good. Well, it sounds like no one liked John the Cappadocian. No. My boss of Constantinople. Yeah. So, and that also makes me wonder, what did he sort of go with it? Because he was thinking, on the other hand, what if I do manage to keep to get Belisarius in a, in, a, in a sting? If I find out he's done something and I get rid of my old rival this way? Like, it's just, there's no, there's no real info on what he thought about all of this. I'm imagining long walks on the pier while music plays while he decides what mm-hmm. he's going to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Constantinople's a dirty town. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the thin purple line between... Anyway. Okay, sorry. All right, so... um, The music involves lots of plunkings of lyres played with pectrums and pentatonic scales, yeah. but... Yeah, but also Tom Waits for some reason. I'm sure. <laughs> Okay, so that was what he did when he was back in Constantinople. We're entering the second phase of the Gothic Wars. The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> um, see, the first phase started because Justinian had or thought he had a pretext for finally invading Italy and yanking it back for Gothic control. Unfortunately, a bunch of other forces found other opportunities to pursue their own goals. I might have mentioned that whole war with Persia thing. Mm-hmm. Despite paying off Sassanid Persia about uh, 10,000 pounds of gold, these uh, cordial relationships had started fraying earlier when uh, Justinian was getting so focused on the West that uh, the Persian Shah Khosrow was like noticing, huh, they're not really paying attention to the part that's bordering us. I bet mm-hmm. we could start some shit. They start mm-hmm. some shit. Gothic so King Vitigis actually induces them to help fight, although it doesn't help because he gets captured before they actually do enter the fray. 
At any rate, by 540, the eternal peace between Persia and the Byzantine Empire surprisingly is not eternal, it fizzles. And added to this huge heap of problems, uh, the first recorded instance of bubonic plague, or rather first confirmed instance of bubonic plague, has just swept through the empire. Um, this early outbreak of Black Death gets called the Plague of Justinian, which is interesting because the emperor contracts it. Mm, yeah. And survives. And survives. Which is really deal. impressive. Yeah. 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 Yeah, um, because this is not, I mean, anybody who's read up on the Black Death knows it's a pretty fucking awful thing to get hit by, and yeah. the mortality rates were really high. But you have healing powers as an emperor, right? Well, I think, I mean, you're surrounded by clerics, but... Also, can eunuchs get the Black Death? Well, that's an or interesting question. Like... Narses doesn't seem to. So, one thing that is actually something they said about eunuchs, it's kind of a slander, but they said that there were these um, poisonous vapors, kind of like what was coming out of the Oracle of Delphi. Miasma. Um, <laughs> no, not mi miasma. It's just like poisonous like vapors from the earth, right? Mm -hmm. And they said it would kill anybody except eunuchs, because eunuchs like were more vile than the vapors, so they don't die from them. <laughs> Surround yourself by, with a cloud of eunuchs. Exactly, yeah. yeah it's better than a rosemary-scented scarf. Yeah, clearly. Um, anyway, he contracts it. He survives. rest of his subjects aren't quite as lucky. Uh, soon Constantinople and its environs are thrown into chaos. Bodies pile up and buried in the streets. Food production ceases. Life just generally grinds to a screeching halt. Procopius says the hundreds of thousands of people die in Constantinople alone. These figures are probably inflated because I think the population of Constantinople was more or less about the population of St. Paul at the yeah. time. Which, which is impressive. Which is hundreds of thousands. Which, yeah, but yeah. still, you know, it is a lot of people who die. A lot of people it die. It was probably the biggest city in the world at it the was. time, right? But at the same time, you know, people are still living in it when all is said and done. Or is there anything in Tang China that... Probably China had a probably healthy population at the time. I just don't know the exact. Anyway, back in Italy, the commanders left in charge of the administration are fucking things up royally. They haven't really dealt with the remaining Gothic strongholds in the far north of Italy, which go through some huge leadership drama of their own before they finally find somebody who's halfway good at commanding called Totilla. More on him later. Um, it doesn't also help... Uh, I think it's called Totilla. That's how you pronounce it. I knew one of you was going to go there. I just couldn't figure out who. <laughs> Bastards. Okay. <clears throat> it doesn't help that the comptroller that Justinian has sent to Italy to sort out accounts is this asshole called Alexander the Scissors, who is um, basically trying to spend his time getting as much of the revenue from the Italian population to do exorbitant fees to make up for the losses and incurred for the, so during the wars. Was he the guy who he has that nickname because he's known for shaving little bits off of coins? Yes, that's okay. him. That okay. is the guy. And we already heard of him as being one of John the Cappadocian's capos, right? Yep, one of his uh, chief assholes in charge. He's also not very good at making sure that the army gets paid reliably, or indeed at all. And again, you're trying to get a revenue base from a depopulated bunch of people in Italy who have just been through successive famines and a bunch of, you know, people moving in and putting you to the sword. But you're going to squeeze every last penny out of it, even if it means you have to shave the valuable bits off of coins to make them less valuable. Exactly. So When you pay people with them. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Morale is not high, in other words. Yeah. And it doesn't help that people like John, the, the nephew of Italian, also John, the least capable person ever put in any charge of anything ever, is still fucking around trying to hold stuff down. Mm -hmm. uh, the new leader of the Goths, who I mentioned, Tortilla, Tortilla, damn you, <laughs> Totilla, 
is somebody to be reckoned with. Um, he has way fewer troops than the Roman commanders, but he manages to completely outmaneuver them and fuck them up in a succession of battles. Although, again, John being one of the people left in charge, that's probably not that much of a surprise. Get the impression you could convince John to eat a plate of string if you put marinara sauce on it. <laughs> anyway, the next ten years are going to be a fucking nightmare for Italian civilians. Um, tor- I, I call him Totilla. This is your... Fu- Totilla! Totilla. You were starting to say tortilla, weren't you? Yes. <laughs> Totilla is actually a really chill dude. He's um, willing initially to negotiate for the northern provinces above the Po River with Justinian. Justinian just flat out refuses. The interesting thing is he doesn't subject the cities that he captures to the usual horrors that happen when you break a siege. He's, Totilla is actually, he's trying to win hearts and minds. And when he actually does break a siege... When it comes to the part when he actually manages to capture Naples, he nurses the starving citizens back to full health. He knows if I give you all the food right away, you'll just eat it and you'll die. So he actually instructs guards to give, to slowly give them a little uh-huh. more food every hmm. day. And Ration then, he, yeah, he rations them. And then once they're well enough, he said, okay, you can leave if you want. So he was really, um, really winning over people in Italy. The, av- wow. the average member of the populace is sort of like, he's not a monster and he's, you know, he wants to be king, but he's not trying to be an asshole. He's a very, right. he's yeah. a civilized Which barbarian. Which is a pretty good way to distinguish yourself in the ancient world. Yeah. Yes. Like, maybe we'll take a Gothic heretic instead of a Roman who's starving us to death. Well, I mean, the Franks put um, Milan to the sword. It was yeah. Milan. Yeah. So it's like, uh, he's also sort of saying, hey, we're the, we're the nice Germanic peoples. Yeah. I yeah. should say medieval world. Well, yeah, I guess it's technically. Uh, well, so as a result of Tortil... Tortilla. As a result of Totila, who is a man who deserves far better than to be conflated with Mexican food, not that there's anything wrong with Mexican food, Belisarius gets transferred back west from the Persian front to deal with this. But um, again, with the old paranoia seeping in about you know his successes, he's critically understaffed. He only gets 4,000 men sent with him. He's undersupplied, and he can't relieve Rome from Totila's siege. Procopius says that people in the city ate, again, mice and their own shit before they finally surrendered. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Rome is going to be recaptured and lost again a bunch of times before this war is over. I think five total from wow. the whole Gatha campaign, starting from the first phase and the second. Five times. And to go back to our Civ analogy, depending on what version of Civ you play, like every time Two. you... Yeah, every to, time you take a city, like, it massively depopulates. It's almost not worth it past a certain point. Yeah. You're yeah. destroying it just so your enemy can't have it. Right. It's like, oh, they sold this wonder of the world for, oh, well, that didn't, yeah. So yeah. it's, it's well, that's a later tragedy. Justinian manages to buy off the Persians once again in 547, which lets him put his full concentration back on the West. Uh, one thing that probably helps everybody out is that Theodora dies in 548 um, of cancer. She- Oh, that's right. Huh? Yeah. Not, again, Black Plague. How old was she? Uh, I think she was in her 50s. Okay. Late 50s. Oh, she's at least 20 years younger than Justinian, and Justinian dies in, well, 40s at least. So, not very. Not very. She was always suspicious of Belisarius's popularity, and now without her sort of leveraging that against Justinian, he's a little more open to thinking more proactively about Mm-hmm. the the western half of the empire. Mm-hmm. He also wants somebody completely in charge of that he trusts that's in charge of the uh Gothic campaign, somebody who has got the chops to finish the job. And at the moment there's John, John the nephew of Italian, and he sort of looks at that and he's like, "Yeah, no." Uh when he recalls Belisarius, he says to John, "You're staying there, but you're not going to be the commander in chief for obvious reasons." 
So obviously he's not going to let John anywhere near reins of power because John's an idiot. He appoints somebody who is now Grand Chamberlain of the court, and that somebody is Narses. Prior to this, Narcissus has been busy. He's been recruiting for the emperor. He's been, he has a real knack with getting various barbarians to sign up with him. He, probably because he's generous with his loot. He knows that mercenaries are not necessarily all about speeches and the glory of the empire, therefore getting paid regularly and not being risked for dumb reasons. Mm. So prior to this, he's been recruiting. Again, a good way to distinguish yourself in this time yeah. period. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're not just using the barbarian troops as fodder. Yeah, exactly. not as shock troops. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The emperor, quoting again Procopius, also sent Narses the eunuch to the rulers of the Aruli to persuade most of them to march to Italy, and many of them followed him. For the intention was that after passing the winter there, they should be dispatched to Belisarius at the opening of the spring. Now, this is what he's been doing prior to being sent over there. But, uh, as a side note, while he's out, you know, drumming up support with the non-Gothic Germans, uh, a bunch of his Aruli run across a band of other barbarians who have been trying to invade, and they route them in a fight, taking capture of a guy who'd been posing as a slain Roman general known as Chilbudius. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite of all. Yeah, that's the best name ever, Chilbudius. Yeah. DJ Chilbudius. Hey man, what's up? Or maybe Chilbudius, but that's also a problem. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't get better or worse. Yeah, he's actually um, a slave who's been posing as, as this guy. As Chilbudius. And he's good at, he's good at uh, imitating a lot of his, he found out a lot about this guy's tics and little mannerisms. His booty is in fact chill. He's the chillest of the booties, yes. Yeah. The problem is, is that the slain so general... He, so he's done drapering him. He's done yeah. drapering him, exactly. Yeah. But the problem is, is that Chilbudius, the slain general, was a member of Justinian's household, one of his you know household cavalry, so to speak. Okay. And so Narses, who of course is a member of the administration and is generally acquainted with this, is like, oh, f the fuck you are. And he basically puts his ass in irons and sends him back to Constantinople. So he's like seeing through this bullshit right away. False Chilbudius. Yes, fake Chilbudius. Okay. The booty has stopped. <laughs> uh, anyway, now it's 551. Narses is in his 70s. Okay. He is chamberlain of the court. He's come a long way since uh, being just, you know, the head of the eunuch bodyguard. Mm -hmm. And now he's named commander-in-chief of the Western armies. Finally. Mm -hmm. So yeah, what about Belisarius then? Yeah, what's Belisarius doing? Belisarius gets recalled and sort of sits in an uneasy um, retirement or premature retirement. He's much younger and... He's like, oh, okay, so I don't get to finish the Gothic Wars? Fine. And he'll get to go out and sort of put down some stuff later in his life, but he's kind of prematurely benched mm -hmm. in terms of his own career. So Justinian's like, we need to finish this war. We need to get this back. Narcissus is like, fine, listen, army marches on its money. You, I'm not doing this unless you make sure that I have supplies, I have men, and I have the money to not only pay the men I'm taking, but also the men who are waiting back in Italy for back pay. Because otherwise, this is not going to get anywhere. I'm not going to start out this just to get abandoned halfway. Justine says, okay. And he gives him everything he asked for. He basically, <laughs> there's there's a really sort of um, tragedy to this. Because I can't stress this enough. Belisarius has been fighting with virtually nothing. Mm -hmm. He's He's been pleading with Justinian numerous times for, can I just get some more men? Can I get some pay for the men that are here? I'm, I'm, he's, he's basically, his genius is being wasted to try, to try to shore something up with shoestrings and scotch tape. Yeah. And he gets no respect from anyone for it. All uh -huh. of the commanders are like, openly defying him, being completely stupid, uh, defying his orders, trying to get glory of their own. Uh, Belisarius has been hamstrung from, from the get, well, not from the get-go, but definitely past a certain point. Mm -hmm. 
Also because, again, resources are scant, the Empire is kind of running on empty. The, mm -hmm. the plague has wiped out a lot of your manpower. It's wiped out your food. It's wiped out, basically, your sources of revenue. Mm -hmm. Justinian's problem is he has so many irons in the fire that there's not enough money to necessarily reliably fund them all. Yeah. He's overexerted. Yeah. He's forgotten the reason why the Empire was split into two to begin with. Mm-hmm. But he rallies everything he can to give to Narses because he wants um, he wants basically Italy back. This has been going on too long. And this is the interesting thing. I think a lot of commanders in the field under Belisarius resented him. He was a hotshot young general. He's a proven genius. He's got glory and vitality. And everybody else wants a piece of that. They want to carve off something for their own. But with Belisarius in the forefront, it's harder to get because he also demands, you know, complete adhesion to the rules and not playing the hero. And everybody who does go out to play the hero usually just makes it worse. Mm -hmm. Narses, by contrast, is not glamorous. He's focused, he's determined, he's uh, analytical, but you don't really feel like you have to share the glory with him in the same. Oh, he's not... Interesting. I, I think it's more like, you know... He's not going to bang up your glory. And... Yeah, exactly. He's not the big dog pissing on you, basically. Uh -huh. It's not this weird... You follow him, but you don't necessarily get your pride dinged. Uh-huh. I yeah, mean, I as much as so, I yeah, get the old eunuch thing. Yeah, it's like, okay, Imperial Majesty is, is related in the Emperor's right-hand man, but it doesn't really feel like I have to take this guy down for glory. Right. So it's... You feel threatened by this alpha. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. He's a guy you sort of fall in line behind with and don't take a ding. So No dick measuring contest. Well, no. <laughs> that... Yeah, That's uh, actually pretty accurate. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, backed financially by Justinian, who just, you know, like, sure... Go ahead. Uh, Narses is able to raise a huge army, heavily barbarian in makeup. He's got more of his Aurelians. He gets some Lombards. He gets a bunch of, you know, mercenaries who want to at least sign up to a punch fight with the Goths. <laughs> and he sets off for war in uh, the spring. He gets held up by some Huns, but he still does manage to get to Italy in the autumn. Totilla has by this time gotten word that he should be expecting him, and he has the Gothic fleet, the naval fleet, which is about 300 vessels, harassing and capturing all the supply ships that are being sent in in preparation for the army's arrival. John, fuckboy John, in a rare stroke of functionality, actually manages to beat Cheeks across the Adriatic Sea, and he pummels the Goth fleet, which is a great name for a band. <laughs> Uh, so hard they have to actually withdraw from the uh, stronghold of Ancona, and the Byzantines are now able to disbark there and establish supply lines. Okay. I think that John's secret is that if you actually have Narses in charge of him, he manages to pee on the furniture less than usual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... So, they're marching into the area of Venetia. I bet you can guess what that is in the modern day. Right, Venice. Yeah. And this gets messy fast because Totilla, who is not stupid, has had his commander flood the road by breaching the dikes of the Po River. So now the entire plain of North Italy is basically impassable for a marching army. Idiot John, who, if you'll remember in the first uh, section of this podcast, didn't exactly know what to do with the pontoon boats in, in, as if, insofar as getting them to the army to relieve Milan, now thinks... Huh, you know, this would be a really good time for some pontoon boats. And he says to Narcisse, you know what, this what... And anyway, long story short, pontoon boats, the army is able to march across the flooded marches. Mm. Marches. It works. Okay. Again, John leveled up in this too. <laughs> um, so Narcisse is able to... He's a character arc. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's he's the dumb guy who becomes the slightly less dumb guy. Maybe I'm picturing Steve Buscemi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This You're out of your element, John! <laughs> Shut the fuck up, John! Adults are talking! <laughs> <clears throat> so Narcisse is able to march down to Ravenna, the Gothic capital, and uh, 
Well, actually, no. By this point, it hasn't. It's been retaken. But he is able to leave a garrison there. He distributes back pay to all the soldiers who have been sort of growling and, you know, left behind there. And now they suddenly have money, and it's not being snipped off. So, um, as he goes back to the town of Arminim, which you might remember from the previous um, podcast is the one he was able to relieve, he discovers the Goths have sabotaged the bridge over the river which would mean that if his army would be at the mercy of the enemy if they were forced to cross it on foot. So while Narses and some of his retinue are, samaging, are surveying the damage and trying to devise a plan, they actually ambush the commander of the local Gothic garrison of Arminim. Arminim. And a scuffle ensues. His German uh, Irulian bodyguard actually shoot the guy. They're able to decapitate him and display his head, and this so disheartens the Goths that are inside the city that they actually... Um, let him erect a new bridge and pass on by without giving them any more grief. They're just like, you know what? This isn't worth it. We're just going to stay in here. You go on past. So, stroke of luck there. Severed heads work. Yeah, put a head on a pike. Damn it. So I tried that with squirrels by the bird feeder. I've been trying. I can't catch one. <laughs> All right, so this is where we come down to the big battle. This is the part where the Hans Zimmer soundtrack starts to kick into overdrive. Ding, sort of ding, ding, yeah, exactly. Ding, ding, big, long, synthy sort of like orchestral <laughs> arrangements that all sound the same. Can we, get Ra- can we get Rachel to do this for this part? Probably. Okay. Unless she'd do a better job. All right, so Byzantine army is now beating a concentrated path south, and Totila is really seriously concerned. He goes up to meet him, and both sides meet at an old Roman battlefield against the Gauls from, like, uh, one, a few hundred years in the past. It's called Busta Galorum, near the village of Tagdine. Now, Narses immediately sent from there some of his associates, bidding them exhort Totila to lay aside warfare and at last make plans for peace, for he must realize that as a ruler of only a small number of men recently banded together by no law, he would not be able to contend for very long with the whole Roman Empire. But he told them this also, that if they saw Totila was determined to fight, they should immediately urge him to appoint a definite day for the battle. And he, in a spirit of bravado, began to boast that by all means they must fight, but the envoys replied quickly, Very well, good sir, appoint some definite time for the engagement. Whereupon Totila immediately said, At the end of eight days, let us match our strength. So the envoys returned to Narses and reported their agreement, whereupon he, suspecting that Totila was planning treachery, made preparations to fight on the following day. And in fact, he was right in his judgment of the purpose of the enemy. For on the succeeding day, Totila was at hand, self-announced with his whole army. And immediately the two armies took up positions opposite one another, not more than two bow shots apart. Hmm. Bow shot, I think, is about 150 feet-ish. You want to play with handbook back there? 150 (laughs) yards. One of those. I've never had a bow. So basically he calls his bluff. It's like Narcy's like, yeah, this guy's got an ulterior motive. We're going to be ready for him. And sure enough, Totila is basically, yeah, eight days. Oh, psych, I'm here. Oh, wait, you, you called it. So <laughs> this is getting sort of awkward. Bostigalorum is an old battlefield, and now it's going to be a new battlefield. What happens next is really interesting, because both sides want to gain the um, high ground that's overlooking the Byzantine encampment. The Goths want it so they can use the terrain to surround and destroy the Byzantine army, and the Byzantine army wants it so they can prevent this, obviously. So... Throughout the Italian campaigns, both armies have heavily employed cavalry units for most fighting. Infantry is basically used to support or back up retreats. It's the people you put as sort of the terrified pikemen when your cavalry is beating cheeks to get back to safety because they're your prestige units. Mm -hmm. And Narcissus shakes up this idea. He gets 50 infantrymen to sneak onto the hill by cover of night and form a phalanx position. He basically is like a stealth unit. Get there, hold this 
this top ground. And this is really interesting. After day came, I'm quoting Procopius again, Totila saw what had happened and was eager to dislodge them. So he immediately sent a troop of horsemen against them with orders to drive them out from there as quickly as possible. The horsemen accordingly charged upon them with great hubbub and shouting, intending to capture them at the first cry. But the Romans drew up together into a small space and making a barrier with their shields and thrusting forth their spears, held their ground. Then the Goths came on, charging in haste and thus getting themselves into disorder, while the fifty, pushing with their shields and thrusting very rapidly with their spears, which were nowhere allowed to interfere with one the other, defended themselves most vigorously against their assailants, and they purposely made a din with their shields, terrifying the horses, and on the one hand, by this means, and the men on the other, impaling them on the points of their spears. So Totila wastes the better part of a day trying to capture this unit, trying to get the hill, but he's sending cavalry against them. And basically as a phalanx, it's, again, the whole thing about Yeah, they're doing the whole pikeman thing, yeah. In Civ, cavalry units are weak to pikemen. Yes. Well, in the world, cavalry units are weak to pikemen. (laughs) Exactly, (laughs) exactly. And Totila wastes time. He goes, he burns through a lot of his cavalry. And he's, he's numerically disadvantaged to begin with. Now he can't use the high ground. He can't use the high ground in a charge against Narcisse. He can't cut him off. He can't basically press an advantage. He's lost a major opportunity. So Totila, in this way, sent many troops and had accomplished nothing with all of them and finally gave up. And I don't think very many of the 50 end up dead. That's a really impressive. Oh, wow. Well, of course, again, they've got a, a superior position. So, Narcissus basically capitalizes on the terrain using stealth and a defensive unit and manages to get the Goths to waste time and resources failing to take that hill. So both armies are really now massing for open combat. And Narcissus, I know I've been doing a lot of quotations, but I want to use this because this is supposedly attributed to Narcissus. I should probably mention at this point, I've been quoting almost extensively Procopius who was uh, the le- uh, one of the leading scholars and one of the last leading scholars of what is considered the Western Roman Empire. He was attached to Belisarius and was basically his legal advisor throughout um, most of anything that Belisarius did, really. And obviously he's not here in person for this part. He's using other people's resources, probably Agathius's. Mm-hmm. But I feel that this quote really encapsulates a lot about the character of Narcissus, or at least his um, mentality, so I'll try to be okay. concise. All right, quoting Narcissus. When an army is entering the combat with its strength evenly matched with that of the enemy, a long speech of exhortation and encouragement would perhaps be necessary of the sort which would inspire the men with ardor, in order that, being superior to the enemy in this respect, they might find the issue of the combat wholly what they wish. But in your case, my men, you who have to fight against an army vastly inferior to you in valor, in numbers, and in every sort of equipment besides, I think nothing further is necessary than that we enter this engagement with God propitious to do us. He's basically saying, we're the or- we're law and order, this is our ancestral home, this is what we are entitled to, Totila's an upstart, and more critically, we're prepared, we have everything in our advantage, don't be stupid, be devout, but know that that's for the reason that you should be devout anyway, don't necessarily make any stupid risks, we have the day. He's, he's basically, he's saying you've got this, don't do, don't be stupid, don't be cocky, we're going to finish this. And it's a really, it's a good long quote, and I'm not going to basically go through the rest of it, but I felt like I need to basically also say the tenor of it is he's enforced, he's, Narcissus is really lawful neutral to, (laughs) basically strict forward. He's saying in the rest of the quote, we are coming into combat in defense of lawful government. They are in revolt against the laws and fighting a battle of desperation, not expecting to transmit anything they hold to any successors, but well assured that it will all perish with them and that the hope in which they live is ephemeral, which... 
I don't think is a necessarily an accurate take on Totilla, but it does. It's basically his line: "We're law, we're order, we're civilization. We're going to fix this shit." <laughs> Which again is a weird thing to make uh, when your army is largely cons- consisting of a bunch of um, German mercenaries. But right. but they're like, "Shut up! Get to the part with the loot!" You know, <laughs> right. I like loot. Okay, so strategy time. Narses deploys his phalanx in long, concentrated rows and stations himself on the left wing, during next to that hill that they've been defending, defending with his buddy um, Fuck Up John and with a bunch of the best Byzantine troops. He gets some other uh, generals on the right wing over here, and he has both wings shored up with highly trained, unmounted bowmen. He's, he's, he's using a lot of bowmen in this. Hmm. On his wing, he also has a massive force of cavalry to act as a hinge and sweep down from the hill onto the Goths in a hinge movement, forcing them to engage the Byzantine infantry, which he masses in the middle. Okay. So, uh, Narses is popular with the Byzantine mercenaries, but he also knows that they have a bad tendency to start to run away when things go badly. So he forces them to dismount. He's like, guess what? You're infantry now, you guys in the middle. You don't get to cut and run, and you don't get to turn on, him if, on us if things go wrong. But he also psychs them up with, with all these promises of Gothic plunder. He's like, hey, we, you know, we peeked these guys back. You get money. Great. Um, Totilla tries to set up his army. He does it basically in a mirror image of what Narcissus is doing. Unfortunately, as stated, he's super outnumbered. He's only got 13,000 men. Narcissus has 25,000. But he's expecting 2,000 Gothic troops to come in as reinforcements. So he decides he's going to stall for time. And in possibly the weirdest installment of a weird war, which is gone on for a while and at one point involved a killer whale washing up in a shore, but that's another story. <laughs> um, he starts riding back and forth in that narrow bowshot airspace between the two armies, riding, showing off what an amazing rider. He's basically doing a one-man rodeo, just going back and forth in a shining armor, throwing his javelin around and catching it, doing horsey tricks. Totilla. Tortilla is doing this. Totilla okay. is like, hey, look, I'm this hot shit barbarian um, king who's like leader of the Goths, king of the Goths, king of Rome. Uh-huh. I'm He's stalling for time, but he's basically just riding back and forth. I, I like to think there's complete silence, just the sound of the hoofbeats and a cricket. Uh-huh. Both sides, both armies <laughs> in between them are just sort of watching this. Like, what the fuck is Maybe happening? Maybe there's somebody right clapping somebody in the <laughs> distance. <laughs> and Narcissus is just sort of looking at this with this impassive stare and it periodically... like something Andre would do. When he... Yes! Yeah, really this does. is an Andre move. I mean, it's a great stall. I, I can't think that nobody takes a pot shot at him, but but again, Totilla is a great horseman, so mm-hmm. he does this for basically the beginning and part of the morning. We'll watch the okay. show, then we'll spin the battle. Yeah, and just confusing and annoying. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing the Goths in real life are cheering and whooping and doing all their whole thing, and uh-huh. there's aggro. It's funnier if you imagine. Yeah, it's your just, version's more fun. Yeah, it's uh-huh. the Monty Python version um but it works he stalls for time the 2,000 troops that he was hoping on for reserves get there and he's like okay he dismounts takes off the fancy armors gets a, everybody meeting up and he's like okay everybody eat a quick lunch then war um <laughs> Narcis has again figured out that totilla is stalling for time he's like okay everybody lunchables but stay in your armor we're, they're trying to catch us they're trying to make us go to lunch and then they're going to try to to route us while we're all got our pants down figuratively Again, he's right. He's really called uh, and pegged Totilla here. Byzantine lunch was thorough. <laughs> yes, it involved um, a lot of little pepperonis and things they said were pizzas, but were just really unconvincing. So, um, and pants down. With the Gothic reinforcements arriving at noon, which again feels like a band name or something, the battle is soon joined. Uh, Totilla does try to catch them at a disadvantage, but they've been waiting for it. They've been eating with their armor on. And he does something which is really tragically stupid. Uh, He's basically ordered that it's going to be a long, mad charge. He's hoping, basically, 
not to use another uh, scene from the American Civil War, he's basically ordering Pickett's charge. He being Totilla? Yes, Totilla. Okay. And the worst part is he says, lances only. Mm. No bowmen, no short swords. We're doing a lance charge right into the middle of the infantry. We're going to try to break them there. And these are spear infantry. Yeah. He's, so he's repeating his same mistake as before? He's taking his mounted horsemen. Yeah, he's basically doing it again. Uh-huh. It, just the sometime on level land. And it's a fucking bloodbath. Because the Roman infantry can switch back and forth between spears and swords and shields as they need to. They can close ranks. But even before then, archers, the archers they have on either wing, mm -hmm. lay waste to the cavalry as they're charging into this. And then the wings slowly close in. It's like, the, the it's basically a crescent at this point. It's sort of miniature horns of Hatton, like years before the, hand, the case. It's such a bad retreat that the Goths, when, when the cavalry is just mown down before they even get to the center where the infantry is, they have to start retreating. They go back and encounter their own infantry, which is, you know, doing the horrified, we have to back up the retreat. <laughs> but it's a bloodbath there because they're basically fighting their own infantry to get past. It's, it's, it's horrible. It's, it's a, it's a fucking shit show. And again, you know, it's, it's, if there's probably a universe where somebody blinked and it did succeed and it's an, being hailed as an amazing breakthrough in a sign of history, yeah. but not ours. Narcissus yeah. does not subscribe to that history. He's like, okay, what's the actual law of averages here? Okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you know, everything went as predicted. Totilla in fact, uh, gets killed. There are two different accounts, none of which are particularly interesting. But basically, he's wiped out, and so is about 6,000 uh, people in his army. That's not even counting captives that they take. Um, German mercenaries are big on taking captives, mm -hmm. solo slaves. And after that, it's basically just wrapping up Italy. Um, the outcome is never in doubt after that point. Narcissus slowly and decisively routes the remaining Goths. He retakes Rome. He turns his attention to trying to break down the stronghold of Cume, where the, Aust where the Ostrogothic treasures are being stored. It's sort of their treasury. Keep them with the civil. Yeah, exactly. And actually, there's an interesting account of him trying to break into there. He's like... Actually, he he remembers that there is that whole thing about the the oracle in Delphi. Uh, well, the Delphi Cuma, it's different. Cuma, 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 wrong, different wrong Sybil, wrong Sybil. Um, they're both in Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, but he's like, huh, that's interesting, because we know there are caverns underneath Cuma, and he's like, if we break in, we can actually get in through the city and just sneak a force in and not have to worry about pounding on the walls. So he actually devises, um, he gets a work crew to try to break in through um, the, 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 the caverns under the fortifications. And it almost works. It's genius. He even has um, the army making a lot of noise in a, in a diff while they're attacking, just so it covers up the din of the excavations. The problem is it collapses in in the wrong way. It's a great plan, but unfortunately, um, just engineering is slightly against them. So he gives up and he's like, okay, we'll starve them out. I hope you're happy. And then he goes on and mops up uh, the rest of the Gothic forces. The rest of the peninsula is captured. Desperate and starving Gothic armies make one last mad standoff on the mountain known as Mons Lactarius, where uh, Totilla's son and uh, successor, Tyus, I never know how to pronounce his name, is killed. And basically, there's no leadership at this point. The enervated Goths sue for peace and just limp away. So that's how he basically cleans everything up. Um, but he doesn't get to relax because... Those assholes, the Franks, just decide they're going to overrun the place. It's like, well, the old order's out. I guess it's uh, all for up for the grabs. And they um, just keep coming over the Alps in successive waves. But Narcissus is able to beat them back, too. He uses, again, his same tactics of favoring heavy infantry and archers with cavalry as support. And he's able to subdue the new upstarts and just generally has Italy back to Byzantine control by 5 5 554. 
And then he has the most unique distinction, and unfortunately the last. He's the last general to receive a full Roman triumph in the city of Rome. Huh? In 150 years. He's the last at all. He's the last person to get wow. the full... Yeah, even Belisarius didn't get that. Wow. This so eunuch... Narses gets, gets a Roman triumph. Roman triumph. In Rome, yeah. In Rome. Which is kind of really hurt for Belisarius. I mean, he's like yeah. looking at his rival who's given full support, watching his rival mop up and, and do all these brilliant successes mm-hmm. while he had to fight for just the barest amount. I mean, the real tragedy of, of Belisarius and Narses is if they had been allowed to work in tandem, if Justinian had been less paranoid and less prickly and, and if Narses had been willing to sort of, you know, view Belisarius as an ally and friend and vice versa... They could have ended the Gothic War in in months. Yeah, and between the two of them, it could have just been over. And more to the point, that would have influenced so much of what happens in the future. It would have been a lockdown, even even with a lot of factors you can't really point to, mm-hmm. because obviously no one anticipated plague. No one anticipated the Persian Empire would suddenly get overrun when when Islam comes mm-hmm. about and mm-hmm. basically annihilates them. Even with all these factors you can't name, a shored up unified, uh, subdued Italy under good control would have meant more um, control over what happens against Persia. It would have meant maybe less of everything breaking down because they lose the peninsula in 100, about 100 years. Yeah. It's a temporary... Yeah, they don't hold on to it longer. Yeah. No, no. It's... I'm surprised it's even 100 years. Yeah. Well, about, give or take. I think it's slightly less. At any rate, Narcisse is already is like in his 80s at this point. He's a mm-hmm. very old man. He spends the last of his life trying to put Italy back into order and reinstate Byzantine rule. And in some respects, that's probably more difficult than actually going and fighting a war. Um, he rebuilds what he can, but years of war and famine mean that it's just, it's not what he was. Rome is like you say, it's like in Civ when you've just overrun a city for the fifth time. Mm-hmm. There is so much less. Everybody says the sack of Rome and, you know, the Vandals, oh God, mm-hmm. this terrible thing. But really the Vandals were a cakewalk. Mm-hmm. Because at some le- they didn't do nearly as much damage as successive generations of people put to the sword and famine and mm-hmm. people tearing down the walls and rebuilding the walls and tearing down the walls. Mm-hmm. So it's the beginning of the time when people just pillage the Colosseum to build stuff on their farms and it'd have a smaller population than... Yeah, like literally no one lived one in Rome day, yeah. for years. And mm-hmm. it's it's the, it's the tragedy of it is Justinian wants to reclaim Rome in the name of the empire, but it's such a nominal recl- reclamation. Yeah, it's purely a symbol, nothing yeah. else. You destroyed the village to save it. And yeah. it's... He also um, has to enforce Justinian's drafts of these decrees known as the Pragmatic Sanctions, which are basically um, undoing, reversing, or nullifying everything implemented or done, done under Gothic law, which unfortunately involves a bunch of sales of property, uh, sales of slaves, a bunch of rulings. So now all of a sudden people who mm. have been living you know, under one set of rules are like, what, what do you mean I don't own this? Wait, can I use that for my insurance claim on the roof? You should try that. So. Yes, yes, you should try that. It doesn't make him popular. There are some accounts that Narcisse is a bit of a tyrant, but whether that's because, again, the people complaining are also members of the senatorial or aristocratic class or what's left of it, or because, you know, there's no funds and having to enforce even modest, even comparatively modest taxation is just a nightmare for a depleted populace, or whether it's because he was turning into an asshole in his old age, we don't know. But he gets a reputation in legend as being a tyrant. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whether or not that's justified is, again questionable. And the reason why that's questionable is because he's outlived everybody. Belisarius dies in 565. Justinian also like follows just Justinian is 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 like six months later he's dead too. 565. Mm-hmm. Procopius, the guy who's been writing all this shit down, he died in 554. Okay. 
so there's like all of our sources sort of limp off into obscurity. Everybody who was, yeah. yeah. And he, he's, he outlives everybody. We don't know the exact date of his death. It's somewhere between 567 and 574. Depending on when you place the year of his birth, he, he might have died as old as 95. This fucking old Armenian eunuch has outlisted lasted everybody. He's outlasted Tribonian and John the Cappadocian and Theodora and Justinian and Belisarius and Procopius. <laughs> this, he's been in a war. He's been in wars. He's been in riots. He's been like in skullduggery and God knows what else. And he's just he finally kicks it in Rome at least 95 years old. Wow, that's quite the epic. Yeah? Yeah, he's he's had a big, long life, and it's just amazing the way it bows out. So, like I said, the tragedy of the Italian campaigns is that between Belisarius and Narses alone, Justin, Justinian had more than enough talent to retake the peninsula. But, again, understaffing Belisarius and expressly allowing Narses to undermine him at critical moments had sometimes really tragic results. And, again, the worst part is there's not a lot of evidence that Belisarius ever actually wanted the throne for himself. He seems mm-hmm. like he was pretty loyal to his emperor, despite all the shit that got thrown at him. But he was a bearded man. Exactly! Yeah. He was a bearded man, and Narcisse wasn't. They were set at loggerheads to one another as a result. It's just, there was so much instant trust that Justinian and Theodora had with Narcisse. Not that it wasn't well-earned. He repaid loyalty with loyalty. He repaid mm-hmm. trust with loyalty. He's... Somebody who seems like he's very sober-minded and very deliberate in what he did. You mentioned again that like that a eunuch would necessary would back their their master up, basically ride or die, bitches. Well, that was the the theory. Yeah, the yeah. theory, and this seems to have been really borne out in Narcy's character, whether or not you could say that of other eunuchs. Mm-hmm. He, I, I kind of have to wonder if it was just. I think back to him going into the Hippodrome during the riots when mm-hmm. he had every reason to fear for his life, and the fact he went through with it and succeeded. Mm-hmm. I kind of think part of the reason he was so fanatically loyal to Justinian, and even to the point where he's able to take on Justinian and say, if you want this to work, you have to give me money, and you have to send me out to Italy like you did in the Hippodrome. I think it's because he sort of shared Justinian's sense of, this is what we want to rebuild, this is what we want to reclaim, this is the scope of what I want to do, even if it seems impossible. I think that resonated with Narcisse. The two seemed like they were a lot alike. They were both administrators, they weren't flashy, they weren't showy. They weren't people who fired the imagination. They were the Wallace Shawns versus the Russell Crowes of this flick. <laughs> but maybe that's why they got on so well. They understood each other on some fundamental level. They understood what had to be done and what was necessary for a vision, even if it turned out to be kind of a badly understaffed piecemeal vision. I also sort of found some evidence that he had strong convictions um, in regards to his internal faith. Um, Narcisse? Yes. of. of Okay, Narcissus is again a bit of a mystery. Not a lot of people write about him outside of the battlefield. He did found a monastery in Cappadocia while he was um, still kicking it in Constantinople between the Gothic Wars. And he's buried there, actually, in a lead coffin, supposedly. Hmm? It's interesting because there's a suspicion that he might have been a monophysite, which is one of the reasons he got on with Theodora, who was secretly leaning mm-hmm. towards monophysitism herself. Mm-hmm. And it's worth noting that um, there's a, a theologian of the time, Evergus uh, Evagrius Scholasticus, who writes an ecclesiastical history, and he puts a lot of people on blast 
for departing from the Chalcedonian model of Christianity. He's very orthodox, or what we would consider orthodox in his views. Mm-hmm. And he blessed Justinian um, for departing from what this and endorsing heresies, which Justinian sort of did. He was wishy-washy on religion mm-hmm. throughout most of his career. Also but, wrote hymns that are still sung in the Orthodox Church every Sunday to this day. Yeah, mad props. But he actually goes out of his way to say of Narses, um, those about the person of Narses affirm that he used to propitiate the deity with prayers and other acts of piety, paying due honor also to the virgin and mother of God, so that she distinctly announced to him the proper season for action, and that Narses never engaged until he had received the signal from her. So he's attributing his success in on the field not just for being uh, cautious and a good tactician despite having no training. He's saying divine intervention. And if Narses hmm. had been a monophysite, it seems like he wouldn't have necessarily been willing to heap so much praise on him, even, you know, just in a little sentence like that. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of the competing factor is a lot of the sources I read online kind of get Narses mixed up with a different uh, Armenian named Narses who oh. actually met him at one point who was sent to Egypt to uh, put down some bits of heresy and also uh, convert some pagan churches. But Mm. Procopius is the person who tells us about this, and Procopius knew his Narses from his Narses. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people just aren't reading very closely and just are like, oh, this is Narses. historical authors. Yeah. Historical figures. Subsequent ones. We're not reading closely, yeah. If anybody, incidentally, has, like, Wikipedia privileges, because I'm not going to get on there because that's going into a foxhole of hell, but there's a line in the main Narses, the the eunuch article, where they're basically saying, they're attributing this to the wrong Narses. It's a bullshit thing. Somebody go edit that, okay? Please? No, seriously, it's the wrong Narses. There's a different Narses. This Narses dies! Procopius says that Narses gets killed during the first bit of the war, so, like, I'm just saying that's some shitty attribution right there. Okay. Surprise, surprise, Wikipedia. Yeah. But last, just wrapping it up, what's really interesting where Narcisse appears is not so much actually what people write about him, but what isn't written. Because as I'm sure you're going to get into the secret history, which is Procopius's darker but arguably better known work. Yeah. He puts basically everybody on blast in the administration. It's basically uh, invectives against Antonina, invectives against Theodora, Justinian, all of the money wranglers. Narcisse isn't mentioned once. Yeah, he doesn't say a damn thing about Narcisse being bad. Good or bad. He's just not mentioned at all. He gets mad at Belisarius and accuses him of being unmanly and weak and subject to Antonina. It's like either sour grapes or some sort of resume padding. Narcisse doesn't get mentioned once. That conspicuous absence is what intrigues me because he would have had to watch Belisarius, his commander and former hero who maybe he's got some complicated Mm -hmm. feelings about, get humiliated and have all of his good work undone. But in this big pile of invective and messy anger, mm-hmm. nothing, nothing, huh. Huh. good or bad, nothing. He knew who Narcisse, he knew who Narcisse was. He probably met Narcisse on numerous occasions. Just nothing. Is yeah. he beneath his notice as a eunuch? I mean, That's or is weird. he, or has he got sufficiently conflicted feelings about him that he's not sure if he wants to either praise him or blame him? Mm-hmm. It's just so weird. It's it's just a blank spot. I never thought that. There's two anecdotes that I'm going to wrap up with. Um, in fact, Procopius in his History of the Wars said about the eunuch's management style and popularity, Narses, for his part, was a man of princely generosity and extraordinarily eager to help those who needed it. And being clothed with great power by the emperor, he exercised his judgment the more freely regarding those matters for which he was in which he was interested. Consequently, many commanders and soldiers as well had in former times experienced his generosity. 
Naturally, then, when he was appointed general against Totila and the Goths, each and every one desired most eagerly to serve and under him, some wishing to repay him for old favors, and others probably expecting, as was natural, to receive great gifts from his hand. He has a reputation for being generous to those who back him up. He doesn't have a reputation for risking people's lives. And that's something Procopius admits freely about him in his non-screaming I hate you 4chan work. <laughs> oh, so Procopius... Does mention him, just not in the secret history. Not in the secret yeah. history. Okay. But in, in the in the histories of the wars, he's Yeah, because the wars is what we've mainly been drawing on that's also entirely, in the yeah. Okay. Got it. And again, you know, I've speculated that, you know, it's that loyalty that keeps him and Justinian in like Flynn. You know, it's like it's it's that sort of sense of I backed you up and I will back you up because you back me up. Mm-hmm. Which is why I have trouble believing one of the legends attributed to Narses. There's a rumor that um, after he broke the power in the Goths in Italy and was sort of left wrapping it up for the rest of his life, a group of barbarians who are not Franks and who are not Goths, called the Lombards, storm over the Alps and invade in 569. And this has disastrous results for the struggling and underdefended region because no one's doing a really good job of keeping it up. Mm-hmm. And this is going to have disastrous effects. This is the beginning of the loss of the peninsula. The rumor about it is that when uh, Narses gets called back to Constantinople before Justinian's successor, his nephew Justin, because, again, the same damn ten names, Mm -hmm. the now Empress (laughs) Sophia disses Narses to his face by saying that, as a eunuch, he was fit only for spinning thread like a handmaiden. Obviously, after a career like that, he's only fit for spinning thread. To which he replies, I'll spin you a thread you can't unravel in your lifetime. Allegedly. (laughs) And supposedly he invites the Lombards into Italy to fuck it up. Which, if true, is really a weird reversal of character because he's... Yeah, it doesn't seem in character. No, it, it... I mean, if he's in his 90s at this point, it seems maybe he's suddenly reverted to that weird sort of petulance and sudden sort of fits of rage that you can be when you get really old, when you've outlived everybody. And if his personal loyalty was just to Justinian and his fuckboy successor is dissing him, maybe he's like, okay, fine, screw it. This is the work of my life. You can deal with it and see how great I was by contrast. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to know for sure. So... I mentioned at the beginning of this recording that this was a the leader that I was talking about was one that had a prophecy attached to him. Okay. It was way back in the beginning of the first episode. Okay. We were talking about Deep Space Nine. So, um, (laughs) but here. Okay. Yep. This is the thing I want to conclude with because if true, it's really an interesting insight to maybe why he was appointed. Uh huh. Narcissus, that is. Or maybe just in general, you know, X Files music. This is recounted by Procopius. The Romans said that once, during the time when Adalaric, the grandson of Theodoric, ruled Italy, the Goths, you know, a herd of cattle came into Rome in the late evening from the country through the forum which the Romans call the Forum of Peace, for in that place which has been situated from ancient times the Temple of Peace, which was struck by lightning. And there is a certain ancient fountain before in this forum, and a bronze bull stands by it, the work, I think, of the Athenian of Lip... Well, that doesn't matter. For there are many statues in this quarter which are the works of these men. There, too, is the calf of Myron. And he said that one of the cattle then, passing by, a steer, left the herd, and mounting this fountain stood over the brazen bull. And by some chance a certain man of Tuscan birth was passing by, one who appeared to be a very rustic fellow, and he understood the scene which was being enacted, and said, for the Tuscans even down to my day are gifted with prophecy, that one day a eunuch would undo the ruler of Rome. Wow. Basically saying Totila would be undone by a eunuch. A steer over a A steer, a yeah. So if true, interesting. And that makes it extra epic. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So a steer being, uh, that's a, a neutered bull. bull. Yeah. A castrated bull, therefore... 
he counts as a steer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Of course, that's how we'd open the movie, you know, just like, right. just like slow focus, uh, serves Lisa Gerard music, mm-hmm. cows coming in by twilight, and then the steer, and then this guy looking wide-eyed, and it's like, you know. And then <laughs> A eunuch will overthrow the king of Rome. Cut to Wallace Shawn squinting off into the middle distance. Inconceivable! <laughs> <laughs> All right, should we end it there? Yeah, but okay, thank you. Okay, very good. Th- excellent job, Anna. Thank you very much, Anna and Nick, for being on the show. Sorry for all the gesticulating. (laughs) Yay, Narcis! Yay, Narcis! We'll be back next week for stories of sex lives of eunuchs and other people in the Byzantine Empire. We've got stories and snippets and stuff from actual Byzantine literature that's going to give us an insight into what was going on behind closed doors. Sometimes out in in front of closed doors. (laughs) The geese, I'm telling you, it's apocryphal. The bull thing happened. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, remember, you can support us on Patreon. I'll draw you uh, riding back and forth like Totilla on the battlefield, (laughs) throwing his javelin and catching it himself, just trying to waste some damn time, waiting till (laughs) 5 o'clock so he can go home. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody. We'll see you next time. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. Yay, Narcis. And one quick thing that we have. It's a tradition of ours, and let us not defy tradition. We do a fake sponsor for a local beer. And today we have Abel, which is made right here in northeast Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, this one I've had before. And I was really thinking, oh, this is going to be the one that I don't actually like that much. And this is going to prove that we have, you know, actual qualified discerning tastes. But... Mm -hmm. I always had it in hands, and now that we put it into a pint glass, it actually tastes pretty good. Yeah, it acquires some personality when it's not in a can. This is First Light American IPA from Abel Beer. Abel Beer. Yes. To describe an able man. Mm -hmm.